0: Seven, the podcast that looks at tech under the hood. I'm your host Owen, and joining me today is your co-host John. How are you today, John? Hi, biscus, Owen. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego slash John this week?
1: Where is Carmen San Diego? Carmen San Diego. <laughs> I love. I'm I wondering this. Really Did you know? Okay, fun fact about Carmen San Diego: there are. I know that there are definitely two Carmen Sandiego's. I think there actually might be three. Three Carmen Sandiego's. I don't believe it. But I, but I found out when I moved to the, UK, the to the U.S. that uh, the Carmen Sandiego that I watched growing up in the U.K. was not the same Carmen Sandiego.
0: Really? Yeah. What? There's different ones. Uh,
1: apparently. Well, I just found out cuz the theme tune was different. So I like what? one day someone was like, yeah, someone was like Carmen Oh, Carmen San Diego and I was like, where is Carmen San Diego? And they're like, that's not the theme tune. What? I was like, huh? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, what's the theme tune for Carmen San Diego? And they sang this completely different one and I'm like, WTF? My childhood. And then it's I, a lie. And then I looked it up and there are two there's a there's two Carmen Sandiegos.
0: That's insane. I had no idea. Fun fact with John. So where in the world are you, John? I'm in Atlanta. Oh, what's in Atlanta? Am, Exotic.
1: So Atlanta, well, actually it's interesting. Atlanta is one of the cities that we work with, and it's actually one of the more progressed cities that we engage with. They're actually just, they're like, they basically have a pl- a long, long-term plan that's really well thought out and being really well implemented on kind of what an intelligent city, what a smart city is. Um, and they're, and they've been really thoughtful in like, Oh, our city's you know, going to grow in this specific way. And it's gonna, I mean, if you haven't read triumph of the city, like if like, I don't, have you read triumph of the city? Like it's just, you have no. to read that book because it, it really explains what's going to happen move. in America. Yeah. There we go. I think I've said it before, but like you really should read it. But anyway, so they run our software, um, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting. So we're, I'm here for hackathon. So oh wow, really? I, I, I don't know if anyone I've ever really explained what our software does. No, tell us. It's fun. Yeah, it's cool. We make a little app that cities run. Well, it's not really a little app. It's actually quite a big app. But we run a an application that cities run. It's um. Well, if you go to municipal.systems, you'll see it. They log in and they're able to. Really easily and abstractly define an API schema. Oh wow! So yeah, so like we have we have really non technical customers, right? So an example is that um, let's say a city planner was going to procure a bus, and so they right. they knew that they were going to buy a bus, and so the way that that process works is you put out an RFP. And then, and then the RFP contains what you want. And then, you know, someone reads the RFP, and then they say, "Oh, I can do this." And then they bid on the RFP with how much they think it will bid. And then there's all these competitive offers that come in. And then, um, and then the the you know who the city decides within some criteria uh, who wins. And it's interesting because the RFP process is really annoying and it's long. Yeah, I was um, going to say it's slow, it's, right? It's slow and it's and it's difficult to navigate, but. There are very good reasons for that, and those reasons are actually going to become more and more important. So I think one of the things to consider is that in very many instances, the person who's procuring the bus likely doesn't know very much about buses. Right. And so the RFP process is actually... Basically built to hedge out the the lack of knowledge within the institution itself, right? So because it's competitive, and you can just put out very high level ideas of what you want. For example, I just uh, received Hoboken's um, RFP for their smart city, right? And so you know they'll you know you'll read it and there'll be a paragraph and it'll say like we want to provide uh, kiosks that can you know, have super high, fa- high, super high fast internet, we, pres- we describe that as this number of, of gigabytes or whatever. And they should be in these kind of areas. And like, this is sort of what we're thinking about. And then when you reply to the RFP, you literally are just like, okay, well, that's cool. And like, you should probably think about this, and you should probably think about this. And this is a good idea. And we can do this. And then you kind of put a price on that. And then you know, other people come in, and they read that. And then they're like, Oh, yeah, we could do that too. And then they bid on it. So you need enough time to like, have enough vendors know about it and learn about it and like be able to prepare the paperwork to to bid on it. Unfortunately, what happens is vendors who are going to bid on an RFP write their own RFPs and give them to the city. Right. And that's very
0: common. That's a and, thing.
1: Yeah. That's insane. And it's pretty like if I want to if I want stay to run in a city, I have to write the RFP for the city, give it to the city. They post the RFP. Then I bid on the RFP.
0: <laughs> that sounds very convenient for you. It is.
1: It's so like I read the um, Hoboken Smart City RFP. I I would bet my bottom dollar it was written by Google because I read it and I'm like, there's no way that anyone in the city of Hoboken wrote this thing. Like I just can't can't believe that to be true. So anyway, then all that they prescribe these APIs and then all of the data kind of flows into this central platform that we have. Um, and then we give them you know, log login and we give them some very lightweight abstraction tools to be able to look inside the data sets they have and layer the city data on top. But then I think more importantly, we have a developer portal so people can build on top of it and sub pump push pull. So is
0: that like uh, you can build on top of the city's data?
1: Yeah, so like an example of that is we have like a bunch of live feeds of data. So one of the hacks that I saw at the hackathon that's coming together is they they are using two or three different APIs. So they're using um, MARTA, which is their transit um, authorities API, and that can tell the, the developer the location and arrival times of all the subways and buses. And then they're using our API to uh, we have a we have a traffic API so we have congestion oh, really? percentage of congestion where the congestion is stuff like that yeah, and then we have nine one one dispatch and intersections and so with the nine one one dispatch intersections and traffic congestion, you can start to get a sense of how the, how things are moving around the city and stuff like that. Right. And then this cool app basically says, oh, you're driving right now here to here and... 25 minutes in front of you, there's a 80% severity traffic incident, which we judge that an 80% traffic incident is usually a 25 minute slowdown. A Half a kilometer in front of you, there is an exit that takes you to a parking lot that you can get off. And and one minute after that, a subway will arrive and that subway will take you to the same location and you'll um, save 45 minutes on your journey or something like that. So like, that's how we see that that's how the types of things that we see on top of, um, the app. Another one is that. Interesting. Yeah. A cool one that I saw also was we have these traffic severity stuff. So, Someone wrote a little algorithm that kind of pulls all this stuff together and says, "Oh, there's likely a traffic. There's been an accident here." And then it actually automatically uses our platform to deploy a drone, a little Patriot. Oh, really? And then the Patriot, yeah, the Patriot just flies over and takes a photo of the accident. And then automatically, we have the rotation schedule and and cell phone numbers of the on-duty police. And then we and we also know where their cars are located, so you can we can text the message, uh, the picture from the drone to the uh, nearest on-duty police unit, and then they can decide if they want to go respond to that or if it has to go through 911 dispatch or whatever.
0: Wow. Amazing. So it does quite a lot. Yeah, those are the types of things that people build on top of the platform. Interesting. Really, really cool. I can't believe we didn't talk about this for like 37 episodes. <laughs>
1: eh, I mean, I think we just started the company when when we started the podcast, basically, didn't we?
0: Yeah, I think so. It was really new back then. So Like anyway. it was when it was a baby. Well, I didn't know that like the, so does it kind of promote like cities being transparent with their data as well by using it? I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're
1: effectively like city data portal 2.0, right? Right. And like in this, in this future world. So what happens is, so there's another company that does this stuff as well, sort of, I, I better be careful about what I say next, but if, <laughs> um, they're called Socrata and they kind of were like, I'd call them like open data 1.0 sort of. And and they're and they're they make great software. Well, they make good software, and 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 I think they're good people. And they're really focused on just like hosting the CSV files and right. Excel files and stuff like that. And I think that's really helpful for you know some percentage of, of of constituents within a municipality. But I think that as more and more people become more technical, and even I find like just random people who are, like, in marketing or something like that um, will, like, pull our pull some data off our API and, yeah. like, do some lightweight analysis and stuff like that. And so I think as that happens more and more, we're going to see, like, more little community apps popping up. And, like, I think it would be really cool. It's something I'm trying to, like, encourage is, like, a little a proper neighborhood app, right, where, like, you know, it's, it's geo-fenced and all of the – every time a film permit is filed because there's going to be filming, it, it gets updated on the app. Every time a street closure has happened, you can automatically report a pothole through it, stuff like that. And, like, see, there's a company called C-Click Fix. It's sort of like the, the beginning of that. So you can download this app called C-Click Fix if your city runs it. Oh, I think I've seen it. that, yeah. Yeah, and then and then basically if you see something in the city that's, like, you know – messed up you can basically uh, just take a photo of it and hit send and it'll automatically send it to the city so actually we get all that data in real time and it's pretty hilarious is that like i couldn't one day i did this little just like looked and it's like seven people in the city have reported like 950 things and it's like mrs mrs smith or whatever right and it's like you can tell that there's like a there's like a grandma going around kind of cleaning (laughs) up the city with the c-click fix app yep
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's fun. Like everybody's like, "I'm a citizen looking out for the uh, city." Like they must love it, especially the olds. (laughs) I mean, it's awesome.
1: That's that's how. What's up with you? Oh, and the weather here is beautiful.
0: I'm jealous. What's up with me? Not much. Just uh, very busy at work. We're uh, I can't say much, but we're launching in a new country, and it's really exciting. So uh, we're working on some really cool stuff for that. So it's just very busy times, especially when you have to translate into another language entirely. It's not giving away too much, I don't think. Uh, you, <laughs> no, we're, we're oh, working yeah. on we're working on something really special and like uh, making a really localized product for the first time. So it's really cool. So that's what I've been up to. Cool. Do you have a dev team? No, we're currently hiring. We're actually kind of an interesting company because we're kind of like if you had a startup of non technical people who decided to make a smart thing. That, you know, you'd hire an agency rather, you know, you don't know anything. And so they've built it historically like that. And now uh, what my job is actually to do is build the dev team. So we're hiring for it right now. And then we take it over from those agencies. So it's kind of like making a backwards startup and we have revenue already. So (laughs) it's a bit weird. C-T-O-O-N. Yeah, it me. C-T-O-N. But it's really cool because, so we get the technology, but we don't have, we have a little bit of legacy debt, but we, we build the team ourselves rather than inheriting something. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm up to. It's crazy. It's a good I, idea. I interviewed like 15 people this week. Anyway, a lot of news this week, man. I feel like it's going to be big. We got a, got a long one. Like I'm looking at the Trello like, oh my Lord. So should we start with the bad shit? I <laughs> think it felt like a really bad week. for Do like, you want to just go through all the bad stuff and
1: then go to the good stuff?
0: I feel good about that. How about we talk about that horrible cloud bleed
1: thing? Oh uh, Yeah, that's a good one. It's pretty, hard, it's pretty hard to understand, so we have to like try our best to explain it.
0: It's really hard to explain as well, but we'll work on it. So, okay, you start, and I'll, uh, I'll fill in the gaps.
1: <laughs> All right. So there is a company that exists in the world called Cloudflare, and Cloudflare was created by a guy called Matt, who's a good friend of mine, a really nice guy, and he went to Harvard and studied law. And then graduated and started this company called Cloudflare. And the idea originally, I think, behind Cloudflare really was just a CDN. So, for those that don't yeah, know, really
0: nice CDN. Uh,
1: uh, CDN is a content delivery network. And basically, what happens is assets that are heavy, so JPEGs and, mm-hmm. and uh, movies and stuff like that, are stored in geophysical or geo. Geophysical is that a real thing? In in locations. <laughs> that like are a clo- Yeah, closer to your customer. So if yeah, you happen yeah. to be a, uh, a company in the U. UK or the US and you have most of your customers in the UK um, you're going to want to run your data center in the UK because the internet's a physical thing and it turns out the speed of the
0: light is real
1: and so and latency can, is a
0: pain in the ass
1: yeah and then the internet also has these things called hops in them which is where you, have to, you get directed through a bunch of servers on your way to the final destination and then everything that gets picked up also usually hops back through all those places again unless it's using peer-to-peer or WebRTC so the then you so what you want to do is you have run this thing called a CDN and that puts you know the assets that are heavy and, and important to you uh closer to the edge and closer to your closer to your customers. Cloudflare basically created something where you didn't even have to know where your customers were or anything like that. You would just run it on top of your website. It's it's it like a lazy man's CDN.
0: Yeah.
1: It's and 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 a good one, right? like they did it, they did a good job. But I think they realized over time that the actual bigger market is protection and DDoS mitigation. Sure. And so I'm sure everyone, you know, who listens knows about all the attacks that have happened on the internet over the last couple of years where things get really slow and people talk about this thing called the distributed denial of service attacks or DDoS. Um, we've talked about it before, but that's basically where you hijack hundreds of computers and you make hundreds of requests to to one computer and eventually the computer blows up. It would be like uh, someone setting up a, a, a bot to call your phone uh, every second for 50 hours. You wouldn't be able to use your phone. There's actually ways that you can look at this traffic at the very low lower levels of the internet and say, Oh this is not this is not legitimate traffic this is not real traffic right, right. um and there's a and there's a lot of characteristics you'll look at that will determine that and Cloudflare did a really good job of this so that it was a really good easy to use experience they R- mitigated things really quickly, and so over time they earned a reputation of being a relatively good product to stabilize your inf- your applications over time from things like DDoS and uh, and um, stuff like that. So, and they also have another product called Virtual DNS, which protects oh, DNS yeah, servers. Oh yeah, it's good. It's really good. So actually, at DigitalOcean, we actually. Basically, were the first customer of their virtual DNS product. They brought it to us before before they even released it. Um, We implemented it and worked a lot with it because what was happening in DigitalOcean was our DDOS servers were getting, uh, or sorry, our our DNS servers were getting DDOSed. And so, when your DNS server gets DDOSed, you can't resolve. Nothing works. Nothing works. So our cloud basically broke. Right. Um, and so w- once we protected it with that, you know, the, D- the DNS worked again. So we also protect our API with that as well. So people would go oh, dbosapi.digitalocean.com. Yeah. And then it would take the API down so then no one could use the API. <laughs> so we protect the <laughs> API with it as well. So that just kind of gives you some kind of background on who Cloudflare is and what they do. And the other thing that's really important to note is they're very, 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 very
0: big. They
1: protect an incredibly large percentage of the internet.
0: When something um, and breaks, that, and you can tell. Like, every time they have an outage, you know it's Cloudflare. <laughs> Either that or AWS at this point.
1: And, and yeah, they, they protect, like, Etsy, Pinterest. Facebook. DigitalOcean. Facebook. Yeah. Now, it's a... Um, it's a bit of a house of cards kind of sure. set up. Like, I, I don't I don't know. Like, if if DigitalOcean, Etsy, and Pinterest all got DDoS at the same time, maybe they'd be able to keep those properties online. But I think that the rest of the properties that they are responsible yeah. for uh, mitigating and serving would probably go down. Sure. And another interesting thing that Cloudflare has done, and this is now getting into what, what ha- actually began to happen, is they have put one or two huge servers in like every data center in the world almost like they are they have a couple one or two really big servers and very very yeah and very very many data centers across the world which does two things it gives them a really nice view of what's happening across the whole internet and it also allows them to keep traffic really close to the edge and not push it down into the internet. So I think we've described before the layers of the internet to think about like the layer that you touch, the, the, the consumer touches, the closest layers like is is quite far away from who who will actually uh, likely deliver like your transatlantic right, right. packets and stuff like that, and so the lower 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 you are, you have more and more and more people relying on you. But obviously, you have more and more insight because you're you know closer to the to the to the edge of the internet. You're closer to the the bottom of the information superhighway, so to speak. <laughs> so these edge servers run. An application that I guess looked like it was custom built by mm-hmm, Cloudflare, mm-hmm. and it runs it at the. It's a C app, and it runs it on the OS, so it's a it's a low level app as well. And it was missing just a, a one four characters basically, yeah. some code that they wrote. Uh, I think it was like functions, like it was a stop or something like that, right? And what was happening was the buffer was overflowing. So just also another interesting thing is. Buffer overflow and memory leaks are ba- like... They're like basic stop. things. Like the, well, And also it's almost always because of a memory leak or a buffer. buffer right, right. Like there should be some law that like you need to like... Like this It's just... Try, anyway. It's so hard so, to track
0: those things though.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So another thing that I guess tangentially I now have to tell you about as well is Google Project Zero. Oh, yeah. Why don't you explain Google Project Zero?
0: Well, Google Project Zero is basically their security research team, right? That They examine various different internet services, and it's a free service, right? They're just basically researchers that are looking for zero-day flaws in apps and internet software, so mostly mostly focusing on stuff like the Chromium base, Adobe Flash, all those kind of things, but they often will get involved with things like Cloudflare when they spot something like that and they work with both sides of it. But there's this whole thing where they have to disclose within x days of finding it right so
1: they're a little well
0: usually if it's project zero
1: that's finding it it's a like pretty bad thing and it's so a really bad they're usually you're usually under the knife to get it fixed like and they also don't mess around they'll just like throw you under the bus they don't really care
0: but it's really complicated stuff like it's everything from like drivers to cloudflare <laughs>
1: Yeah. So they they like basically it's a team of researchers who just sit all day and just like inspect the Internet and look for problems in the Internet. And so
0: since 2014.
1: Yeah. They're doing this thing called fuzzing, which I'm not going to get into, but you can just go read about it. Uh, but it's a uh-huh. way of te- software testing, a semi-automatic software testing technique looking for uh, invalid, random or unexpected data from whatever so they're fuzzing the internet looking for things that they didn't expect they found some stuff they didn't expect it's not that it's not unusual that they would find stuff that they didn't expect sure but then they looked at it and it was like plain text uber driver data and yeah and they thought it was text, weird at like,
0: first it was inconsistent as well yeah
1: so they so they actually got the whole it looked like they got the whole team involved and and Tra- travis who's like I mean, that's you get you get a call from, from Project Zero, and it's like the the horsemen of the apocalypse are you showing shit, up. At you your shit front your door. pants. Like, you <laughs> basically call your whole security team in and say, "Talk to these people and figure out what they want," because they don't
0: make mistakes. Project Zero is only big not. stuff. Yeah, like they'll come to you and they'll say, yeah. "You've got to fix this in ninety days, or we'll disclose it to the internet because it's bad." Yeah.
1: So this, uh, so they were doing fuzzing and they found all this mount this you know basically plain text code in the or, uh plain text stuff it was in the wire. memory dumps, yeah. Yeah, and they were session like session cookies, what is passwords,
0: this? user data, user state, everything.
1: Now the important thing to to note about this is it was happening at such a low level. It was happening outside of the application layer that it wasn't it wasn't protected by HTTPS. Sure. And so all of this stuff that you usually wouldn't be
0: able to see Including session keys and everything. Like and security keys. certificate should, private keys were just falling out. It's crazy.
1: I should actually look at
0: that a little bit more
1: because I don't I didn't quite understand where that like on the stack it was happening.
0: But I mean it was pretty high level because what was happening is basically the buffer would overflow on the Cloudflare server and that server would overflow all of its clients. So you know, whoever was using that, be it Uber you know, Reddit and maybe some company that processes credit cards, all of that shit would be dumped at the same time. And it was cached on Google. That's what made it worse, as it was publicly cached. And it happened for months. It's crazy. Yeah, it was going on
1: for many, many, many months. And and so Google actually spent a long time going through and scrubbing its search results so right. that you couldn't find these things. But, of course, Yahoo, Bing, you know, uh, DuckDuckGo, everybody else who caches, they still have the caches there. So you can actually, uh, you know, go read a lot of this stuff now. In fact, I, like, found some some Uber driver tokens. So in theory, I could authenticate to Uber as a driver and just pretend to be them.
0: You have to rotate everything if you were affected. Yeah,
1: it's not going to be – it's not fun. And so – so I would say like I don't know how much is out there right now, like how much you could actually go snoop around and find stuff, but and I think that everyone did
0: a really good job. They mitigated it in 47 minutes, apparently, when the Project Zero team called them, and it was fixed within forty eight hours, which is it's impressive. But holy shit. <laughs> so this is good. Matthew
1: Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare. I like Matt and I like Matt because I've known him for long enough that we, you know, we've built up a friendly relationship, but I don't think he's the most friendly guy with everyone. Uh, I think a lot of people would say that he's a D-I-C-K, but, and so on, um, he, he says, Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, Baidu, and more, the caches other than Google were quick to clear, and we've not been able to find active data uh, on them any longer. Huh. We have a team that is continuing to search and look for other potential caches online. Oh my god, and so many team has been briefed to forward any reports to our security team immediately. I ge- I agree that it's troubling that Google is taking so long. We're working with them to conduct Wow. Disclosure after the caches were cleared, and I'm thankful for the. While I'm thankful for the Project Zero team for their information and informing us so quickly, I'm troubled that they went ahead with disclosing before Google crawl team could complete the refresh of their own Google caches. I've continued to escalate this within Google to get the cr- crawl team to oh, prioritize I clearing with their that. caches. Well, no. So Travis, the the guy who um was, was basically heading this at yeah. Project Zero Day, said. Replied to this and said, Matthew, with all due respect, you don't know what you're talking about. View source, link, 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 link. Not as simple as you thought? Question mark, question mark, question mark.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's amazing. But here's the thing like, Google has to disclose that because the companies that are affected, you know, in the time between them being able to fix the case, if someone knows about it and it's out there. yeah. Yeah if they did that and waited they don't give the companies that are affected a chance at all like they are at a huge disadvantage so i think they have to do it yeah that's crazy it's huge it's actually huge because it's kind of this is one of those cases where a private company has kind of like boned all of its customers you know it's um it's amazing like on the sheer scale of this is crazy it reminds me of Heartbleed as well just that, oh, it's a lot
1: of people were saying that this is worse than Heartbleed, actually. Well, it
0: is because it's all centralized, right? Like one company was responsible sure. for leaking so much data, and it's hard to like. It's so bad that it's really hard to determine how you're impacted. Like yesterday, I mean, we use Cloudflare at work, and we were we were thinking, okay, well, how do we mitigate this? And the answer from Cloudflare is basically like rotate everything you can think of, and you're like, uh, um, okay, and that takes a lot of time and it's expensive. and then you have to decide like did i leak i don't know and yeah there's a whole thing it's crazy it's bad so if you use cloudflare i don't know i wouldn't ditch them but it's like amazing how big this is and
1: uh i would probably ditch cloudflare at this point
0: yeah i mean that's a big dependency and i think it really shows you like the risk of letting somebody else handle stuff for you right they didn't know what they didn't know and that's just how it is i will
1: say though it's their core competency so like i'm always a believer in like focusing on your core competencies and letting and like relying on other people who focus on their core competency but in order for something to be a core competency you actually have to be competent
0: yeah right and this just reveals that it's pretty obvious that they didn't know what they were doing in this regard i have to say the the most impressive thing about this the whole way they went about it is how far they went to disclosing what went wrong actually you know they showed code and they showed what was wrong but it's like yeah
1: how could you They're not have good noticed for that this? kind of stuff though
0: yeah it's just it's just a crazy thing so uh that was that was pretty bad and then there was also the S, the SHA-1 collision this week the first one the encryption algorithm uh which is used to, uh, a lot of the time to validate files and also um for git validation they had its first collision which means you can basically spoof files from now on because all of the the whole address range has been used and that was the day before this and then Cloudbleed bleed happened and everyone was like oh my god
1: <laughs> I mean the sha the sha collision is not such a big deal no. because no one ever it's no old. one uses it anymore it's been deprecated for like how long now
0: uh like 3 or 4 years There's Five people years, still using yeah, it but like it's not at the scale that it's really really bad
1: the reason that Google actually did this, I suspect, is to force people to stop using it. Like, all right, now your stuff is definitely insecure. Yeah, I definitely here's I a pro- think so. Here's like, how you...
0: Yeah, if you make it really obvious and say, like, don't use this, and here's how we can easily spoof stuff if you if you do, I think it's really smart. It's a really smart way to get people scared into <laughs> stopping to use it. Yeah. <sighs> we have one more really bad thing to talk about. No, we have, like, five things on here. No, oh, they're all bad. Did you hear about the the susan fowler thing at uber it's crazy it feels like it's been a really crazy week a little bit but what started out as what it was just on her personal blog she posted this this post where she was talking about harassment at work and um a few other i think it was a toxic work environment basically it was kind of like her manager propositioned her for sex on her first day in the job was unfair to her after she reported it And the HR team basically said like, well, he is a, you know, a loyal, dedicated Uber manager, so there's nothing we can do about it. And it's this whole crazy thing. I encourage, I implore you to read the post. I'll post it in the show notes. Like, please, please read this. It's crazy to think about how toxic that company is. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. So that post, which she just published on her personal blog, blew up first, and then The next day, the New York Times published interviews with 35 women from the company that had also experienced similar harassment. And then their early investors, I don't remember their name, but two of the earliest Uber investors published an open letter on Medium saying that they can't stand by watching this happen anymore and imploring Travis Kalanick to kind of step up and actually do something about it. I guess they must be hemorrhaging users because the crazy thing is this blog post went, you know—it's it's twitter i don't know twitter viral i don't know it blew up and uber i must they must be hurting because they modified their delete your account page to have a message about susan saying that they're doing everything they can to stop it with her name in it it's like oh if you read the susan fowler thing we're doing everything in our power to resolve the harassment in our workplace and the toxic environment i was like I I don't know how I feel about that, like putting her name on that page and things like uh, that weirds me out. But they must be hemorrhaging users from it and they should because it's insane. Yep. And then so just an hour ago, uh, BuzzFeed published a leaked audio from a meeting with 100 female engineers with Travis Kalanak. And you can actually listen to it on BuzzFeed. I'll also link this. It's pretty interesting. Basically, they confronted him about it in this meeting and he he, I mean, obviously he struggled to deal with it and he kind of promised that they'll do something about it. But this is like, this has been a thing that at Uber for a long time, there's so many reports. It's like a, yeah, I was going to say it's like one of those elephant in the room kind of things, but everybody knows this about Uber.
1: Yeah. Like I know so many people who are engineers who work at Uber who are like, it's a job. I work nine to five. Yeah. I get paid incredibly well. I give no shits about Uber. I don't mm-hmm. partake in the culture. It is a tire fire in here. Like, I have literally had two or three engineers from Uber recently tell me that. Yeah,
0: it's just a big fret culture from what I've heard.
1: Well, it's interesting because I sent the Susan Fowler article to a software engineer friend of mine. And she's younger. She's just started out in the industry. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she said, oh, God, is it weird that, like... I've experienced this. And I was like, no, come on. Oh really? And she was like, Holy shit. Holy shit, John. I've encountered so many similar situations to the ones described. And I was like, are you serious? Wow. She was like, yeah, I've had multiple guys around the office. I'm just reading verbatim. Now I've had multiple guys around the office make really suggestive comments to me. And now I just avoid those um, people. People have talked to me about how pretty I am and cute I am in the lunchroom. And I said, anything unwanted, especially sexual, isn't tolerable, period. Right. If someone makes suggestive comments to an employee in a company, in my company, they would be fired immediately. And she said, I have to tell you these stories in person because they're unreal. Like, the advances that these people make is crazy, and they do it in front of people, too. And I said, I'm super disappointed to hear that. And honestly, I really like to talk to you about it, and I hope that you're willing to do something about it. I understand if you don't want to, but this is something that is happening a lot to women in the industry, and we need to speak out more about it, especially, especially, especially when it happens over text or Slack. But still, in-person comments are 100% unacceptable. A friend of mine, oh, I can't go any further, and she said, okay, I have some really weird stories to tell you then. I thought this was just normal. Hmm, it's really difficult being a woman in tech and really difficult to be taken seriously. This sucks.
0: Wow, that's intense. Yeah, I mean, and the crazy thing in the Uber scenario is that they didn't even do anything to defend it because this person was so high ranking or whatever. It's it's insane. It's I re- I really I really feel strongly about this, and I hope that, uber actually can do something about it i kind of find it hard to believe that they even care but i mean it's been going on within their building for this long
1: i'm gonna say right now if i ever hear anything about that in a company that i am responsible for like not only is the engineering manager gone hr is being replaced like i would like, you yeah, would of just course. go to town ripping the company to bits until it was the way it needed to be. It's systematic. Yeah, it's definitely, And it comes from the top.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that Travis hasn't been doing anything about it. Did you see the thing from his in early investors? It was like the first or second round of investors. Yeah, that's crazy. And they wrote an open letter just basically saying it was unacceptable. And there were a lot of people saying it's not fair. It was Mitch and Fre- Freyada Kapoor. They're really early investors, but they're they're... Famous for being kind of ethical investors. And uh, they published this post basically to say that Uber had been here many times before, responding to public exposure of bad behaviors like this by holding all-hands meetings and had done nothing about it despite saying that they would do that. It It goes on and on. I encourage you to read it. It's crazy. And then, oh, yeah, the thing that makes it even worse is Uber is using insiders who already work at the company to try and resolve it. And they're using Eric Holder, the former attorney general. Is that right? I think so. Yep. of the u s who's previously been involved in the company anyway to investigate, and he's been there since June, so like it's still bullshit, and Ariana Huffington, I mean really Ugh. I find it I find it crazy, I don't know, I'm sure we're going to hear way, way more about this for now, but the other interesting thing was I read somewhere else that, and I don't know how true this statistic is, but apparently Uber had really made progress in its diversity efforts and they've lost all of the women that they had joined the company basically since then. They'd gone from like 20% female engineering to like 6% now, which is absurd. So, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's I think it's on all of us to actually do something about it. You can't trust HR to do the right thing necessarily. And if you see it in the workplace, you have to say something. I
1: I remember one day, like... I think everybody was a little shocked that I did this, but one day I we were like 150 people or so at DO. Yeah. And I can't remember what it was, but it was like a, about a year and a half ago, it was one of the like blog posts about something. Oh, I think it was um, Nerdcore at GitHub or something like that. Yeah. And I just posted it into the Slack channel and I said, if anything, if anyone does anything like this at our company, I will spend... All of my efforts and energy campaigning to ban our CEO to make sure that you get fired. Wow. And they were shocked by that? Why are
0: they shocked? Like, that shouldn't be shocking.
1: Because talking about firing someone in the general Slack, like talking about firing in the general Slack channel makes people nervous. But, and also that I was just a VP, <laughs> so I probably was, shouldn't have been saying, like, I it should have come from Ben, right? But I mean, screw it, man. Everybody whatever.
0: at the company has a part to play, I think. And if you see that shit, you have to do something about it it's systematic right like you can't just trust trust hr to do the right thing if the company itself isn't willing to call out that kind of behavior and it's hard i mean it's hard to see and identify it but you got to do something you can't just let it happen i don't know we're gonna see a lot ben
1: hey john hey so i'm on my podcast with owen uh who you've met before And we do this thing, it's like a segment that we do every week where we call a random friend of mine from uh, my phone book and we ask them a quick question and then give them a couple of minutes to answer. So we start off with who you are and how you know me, um, and then I will ask you my question.
2: Sure. I'm Ben Uretzky, co-founder and CEO of (laughs) DigitalOcean, and uh, (laughs) I know John because he was introduced uh, to me from one of our other co-founders, Mitch, and uh, actually worked with us for a few years, first as a chief evangelist and then doing a whole bunch of other stuff.
1: Cool. Thanks. So just before we called you, we were talking about some of the stuff that's going on in the industry uh, around kind of engineering teams and the culture and engineering teams and stuff like that. And I know that that's something that you and I have had a lot of conversations about in our time together and also something that's really important to you. And so I guess I just wanted to ask you kind of, you know, I I just got done saying I think it comes from the top and so I just wanted to kind of ask you I guess a couple minutes of how you think about that in in your company and like building a company with good culture and and making sure that everyone feels safe and supported and stuff like that
2: Yeah, definitely Uh, I think what's unique at DigitalOcean is we have uh, a single culture and I know at times sometimes there are kind of subcultures that can exist and they can be positive or or negative Uh, but the unique thing about the way we've built our business is uh, engineering did not create its own uh, subculture if you will Mm -hmm. and so they really took on and adopted the -hmm. principles of the business and the more that we spent on really crafting a set of values that everyone can get behind and Uh, putting them into the work that we're doing every day. So, for example, every two weeks we have an all-hands meeting. The first page actually lists all of our cultural values. We had a few uh, cultural value-like committees put together that really refined them, uh, gave them a lot more operational value in the employee feedback that we provide on a biannual basis. Uh, we we incorporate the values into that as well. So cool. I think you know as uh, you, you you have to be very proactive and you know it took us a little bit of time to to get to that point. and yeah, I think it was r- roughly around a hundred people where we started to get much more intentional about it mm-hmm. because if you don't if you don't take the time uh, to proactively create a culture, what happens is one will
0: mm-hmm.
2: one will be created in the vacuum that exists. and so then, you have much less ability to shape it, and I think it's it's really important for uh, you know co-founders, like you said, for you know, kind of from the top to to really start and, so and think true. about what kind of culture they want to create for the business. And the interesting thing about it is you're working on a multi-year timeline, kind of yeah. similar to uh, product development, and uh, there are always going to be interesting consequences, even when you create a positive culture. For example, one that can be very supportive and. And people-oriented, the challenge can be how do you tie that back to uh, business results and, and objectives. So uh, it's really a tricky thing, and I think finding the right balance is something that you have to constantly tune on, uh, you know, on a, on a monthly or quarterly basis and remind people how those values tie back into the work and the objectives for the year.
1: For sure. Awesome. Well, I I, I must say I, I – well, I'll ask you did you have fun learning about this stuff and like implementing it and kind of building it in your company?
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it was, uh, you know, you, you read a lot about kind of, you know, culture and values and you don't really have a chance to, uh, to practice it or, you know, and it's a totally different thing. I believe, although I've never been on the other side of being kind of the creator and then a participant in, in the culture. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, what I really enjoy is a good challenge. And I think, mm-hmm. Being able to influence people's behavior is a very difficult thing, and so that that aspect of building a culture was uh, was really exciting because, you know, it really is challenging. How do you get people that have thought and behaved in the you know in a, in a specific way to change their behavior? While still contributing to, uh, you know, to the company and and to the objectives, and so, uh, I I think we're getting into a really good place. We've been working on it um, since early 2015 in a very intentional way, mm-hmm. and I feel like we have the healthiest think company so. right now. I think so. You know, a, a really good safe place to yep. work. We address issues that go on, you know, around the world and in tech on on a biweekly basis, and we have open and honest conversations, like in our all hands meeting the. Uh, ask me anything section we have an online moderator mm-hmm. and uh, if you don't feel comfortable using your name you can actually ask any question that pops into your head uh, as anonymous and I think that creates that helps to create that you know safe place to have the discussion
1: well I think you've done an absolutely marvelous job Ben and I had an absolutely wonderful time working for you and with you and I hear a lot of people talk very positively about the digital ocean culture these days so I'm very proud of all of the work you do and I was certainly. Uh, lucky to work with you and so thank you very much for coming on and uh we'll send you a link once it's up and you can take a listen
2: awesome thanks thanks, buddy talk
1: to
0: you later nice good one that was a very very contextual call awesome so i heard one of your favorite internet platforms is no longer independent
1: uh this is true Uh, it's not one of my favorite internet platforms i was there on day one back in the day Should I talk about it a little bit?
0: Honestly, I can only say all I know about this, because I actually found out from you putting it in Trello, is that DeviantArt sold to somebody. So I'd love to actually hear who and why and what. I didn't even know there was still a thing, let alone able to be sold. For sure. So DeviantArt is
1: an online art community that was founded by uh, Scott Jarkoff, which is his real name, and Angelos Terra in... Well, we started working on it in ninety I it's really weird because online everywhere it says that it was two thousand that it launched, but in my head I have nineteen ninety eight and nineteen ninety nine stuck in my head as like right. years that we were working on it, but I guess maybe not. So DeviantArt is and I mean I I think if you don't listen to this, if you listen to this podcast, you don't know what DeviantArt is, then we're lost. But uh, DeviantArt is an online art community. Uh, it's, it's probably the oldest social network that still exists on the internet um, and is active. And it's just a, a huge community of artists who upload their work and comment on them and stuff like that. And so
0: It makes me think of, um, do you know Dribbble? Yeah. It's like a non-Jackoffy version of Dribbble. It's like the original art platform. So I met
1: these uh, dudes. They're just starting it on IRC years and years ago in their late 90s, early 2000s, and ended up joining them. And I was one of the first directors of community. And I worked with Scott, who is the uh, co-founder and the the kind of head of community. Um, And this guy, Eric Kolb, Kolb, C-O-L-B, K-O-L-B. And by the way, these people are doing nothing today. Like I think Eric works as like a security engineer for the for the navy or something like that and Scott's stationed in uh japan also working for the u.s government and i don't know we just built it up over the years and i don't know when i i, I left in 2005 or 2000, no 2007 i think i left and uh, when I left, we had 22 million active users. Wow, it's huge. So yeah, when I when I at its peak, it was at 32 million active users. Wow,
0: yeah,
1: huge. So it's huge. It's old. It, I mean, it, it, and then like I remember when Flickr started, and we were like, "Oh, Flickr's is coming. This is bad." Blah 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 blah. So they sold to Wix. W i x. The the. WYSIWYG website generator it's a publicly traded company it's got a two billion dollar market cap um and they bought DeviantArt art for 36 million dollars wow million dollars for every active user at its peak i guess and uh that's insane so that's cool wow i won't get into too much of of uh kind of how i th- feel about the price um i'm pretty sure that it was mostly uh I don't think anyone really made much money off it, but
0: No, I'm just surprised it was still there. No, I mean it's still it's still there. I know that the user base had
1: started to dwindle and I know that kind of as of this year they had, I think, I don't know, twelve or thirteen employees or right, something right. like that. Like they really laid laid off the, a lot of the staff and stuff. So I'm sure they were preparing for a sale. Angelo's been the CEO of the company for from day one. And I'm really? sure that Digi- or DeviantArt was was an amazing, amazing lifestyle business. Um, I'm sure that he made, you know, a couple couple
0: million bucks a year off it. And so, I mean, why would you sell it? You keep it along as long as you can. And Sure. And it's a cool community. I mean, I remember that from, like, the early internet days. I think there was, like, my first introduction to, like, digital design as a thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Very, very. People cool. really like Deviant Art because it's a super like nice place, and it was actually interesting because it was like front page of Hacker News for like five, for like four days or something like that, uh, or like a day, maybe two days. But I like commented on it, and I was like, "Oh, you know, I I, I worked on this in the very early days, and it was a lot of fun, and I." I am who I am because of it, and I and right. learned a lot and learned about Linux. Chris Bolt, the guy that built all the technology, is just like I actually dated his sister Liz for years. <laughs> uh, like super nice, super amazing guy, and people on were like, "How how did DeviantArt become such a nice, good place?" And you know this goes back to exactly what ben just said like it starts from the top it's the tone that you set it's the culture right and i said i said on hacker news like something kindness was really something that we built into the community from day one right it was it was really important everyone who was steering the community was responsible for uh making sure that people were kind and we talked about loving each other uh, very often. We talked about loving the community very often. We said it very publicly. We said it out loud. And actually, we did the same thing um, at DigitalOcean. We because and and not disingenuously, like yeah, right. I always loved. I loved what we were doing. Right, like I loved the community we were building. I loved the people that were a part of it. Like I would do anything for, have done anything for them. I actually like during the time that I was. Running some of the communities on DeviantArt. I was living in Scotland. I was in a tiny village called Lethem. Uh, there were 60 people in the village that I lived in. I got internet in 1995. In 1997, FreeServe came out. And that was when you actually moved from a 5p a minute, so 10 cent a minute dial up, you'd be charged per minute, like just as a regular phone call. It moved free. So you would have a 1 800 number that you would dial into and then you would pay a monthly subscription fee to the right. to free serve um, which was awesome and so when I got free serve of course I had like free unlimited in- internet and so I just that's all I did for years yeah. was, I lived in this tiny village it was 60 people there were no I mean then I think it was important to me but there, now I guess less so but there were no males of my age five years of either side so probably why i'm such a raging feminist i grew up mostly around women so i'm much more comfortable around them right and just like this was my my teenage years this was like how i grew up i grew up in this community i think i am the way i am i'm a kind person and i am like you know like the thing that i am the way i am because of how this shaped me and how i was taught by eric and and scott to shape the community (laughs) We would like we had like a really strict no assholes policy. Everyone in the t- the like community team had a lot of leeway to ban. Um, we banned very very frequently. Uh, we banned for even remotely off tone or off culture. And then like with the banning tool on DA, you could actually it was all timeout, so it was actually really hard to ban someone for life. You basically had to like get angelo or scott to approve banning someone from the le- site uh, right. f- for life because we just didn't do that and like yeah because rehabilitation was really important right like sometimes people would come in from like slash dot or like you know some other uh if yeah i don't think 4chan existed then but like some other 4chan. community and they wouldn't know how to engage with our community and so and but the community itself was taught to like like people who had been there for a while knew that like it was human first and like you would write a critique on a on a on an image or on a piece of poetry or on a scan or something like that or it was like you can be harsh but it has to be like kindly harsh right like here are the great things you do you did and like yeah and here's how you can improve and that kind of stuff
0: like like, constructive it was it
1: was so far as like people would rewrite whole critiques that new members would post to show them how it was done so you'd like see a comment on a picture and then you would see someone else being like hey welcome to DeviantArt. happy to have you here just so you know we're like an inclusive kind of community and like here's how you approach the community some people would just leave some people would tell you to fuck off and then you'd get they would get banned and that was that wow and then i think the other thing that was super important to DeviantArt that like i oh, man, i could write a i gotta go like i could write a book about community building at this point like online like one of the things that was super important was humanization aspect right like we added profiles super super early we had very specific fields that we asked for what's your name what's your location what are you into what winamp skin do you run what distro do you run um, what's your favorite movies what are your favorite songs and we really encouraged people to post in their journals and we encouraged people to be super personal in their journals and stuff like that and just like and we really, really strongly discouraged pedanticism. Like anyone who was like being pedantic or quibbling over like technical aspects or whatever, go fuck yourself! Right? Like this is an art community. We're here at all to enjoy the art. Yeah. And I think I think in very many instances, when we brought people in to the staff, like they were we we waited. All, we would watch the community for a very long time and say, okay. This person who like we've been watching this person for six or seven months, they reflect the culture that we want. We should go approach them and see if they want to join us, right? And that's and we pulled everybody who was staff from the community.
0: Huh. That's cool. This is like the opposite
1: of how Twitter builds Twitter, by the way. <laughs> well, it's so funny. Someone actually, I kind of like posted a little bit on HN about the just kind of how we thought about community building, and and someone was like, "This sounds absolutely awesome." They used a word which I. Don't didn't know. I had to get Laura to help me with it. It's I thought it was precedent, but it's not. It's P-R-E-S-C-I-E-N-T, which apparently means forward thinking. Prescient, yeah. And rare. Prescient. And I was like, yeah, I guess like and then I started thinking huh. about it. I was like, wow, yeah, nobody has built a community that way in a very long time, right? No one's built a community for nice people, right? And so I don't know, I think like I remember one time where we were like, hey. All the staff have to change their uh, profile, like, their little profile pictures to photos, not avatars. Like, you have to have a photo of your face smiling, and it's, like, you. You know how much less harassment I got from people the day I did that? People were like, oh, this is a real human. This isn't, like, you know, some... some... Oh, my God.
0: It's not just a bot.
1: Yeah. And actually, when when I met Ben, who we just heard, and and Moisey, his brother, who's the other co-founder we talked very for I met them before I way before I joined um, DigitalOcean. I met them when they were like techstars company. and and Moise would always say, we're building this company on love. We're building this company on love. We're building this company on love. and and I like, I heard that. I like it really resonated with me. and and when they had raised their series A, they were like, Oh, do you want to come work with us? And I was like, absolutely. You know, like they were like, we want you to come build the the community. We want you to come understand the community. We want you to come, right. um, you know, go go out in the world and speak to people and represent us. And I thought, gosh, yeah, this is an opportunity for me to like think about community the way that we thought about community at DA and build the DO community in a very similar way and really like focus on. Unabashedly, unequivocally, and without looking for return, focus on the customer and focus on making sure that they're happy, and focus on the community. And then, as is true with DeviantArt and was true with DigitalOcean, you will be re- rewarded for such. You know, people will come. The right people will come. They will spend money. They will vote with their dollars. Right? Yeah. And big you see time. what's going with, going on with Uber right now? I'm going to go delete my Uber app right now. Fuck this shit. You know, like, I, like this in this world is sorry i'm getting real ranty now but like no i love this world needs more love and more kindness and more like people need to go out and serve with love and kindness and that's just that right and so no one knows empathy anymore i think one of the things i learned from irc was empathy like you can't stand in front of someone and read their read them you can't you can't feel them and so if you really care about this person and knowing this person you have to learn about them and I think a lot of people think empathy is like oh yeah like this person's having a bad day so I better be nice to them or like I'm I'm an empath so I like no I can like read people like I remember was someone interviewing once and was like oh yeah I'm I'm empathic like I I can just read people's emotions and know what's going on and I'm like okay being like having empathy and having a lot of empathy for someone is like deeply understanding their situation and circumstance and where they sit in life and trying to like make sure that they are forwardly mobile or like taken care of or whatever that looks like. But that's like actually probing them to find out like it's asking tons and tons of questions, personal deep questions and caring and caring and caring and pushing and unpeeling unpeeling the layers, unpeeling the layers, unpeeling the layers. Right. Yeah. And I think, on IRC, we had to do that because you had. If you oh, man, were, on
0: IRC, you have to. You, if
1: you were, like, I was on IRC for, I don't even know, years and years and years and years. And I just, and like, I had great friends on there, me, like a whole bunch of people. And I knew them, right? Like, I knew where they lived, I knew who they were, I knew what their wives were doing, I knew what their kids were doing. And like, but they were like random people on IRC.
0: Yeah, you don't actually know them IRL at all. Yeah. So, anyway. So anyway, David, art sold. So I have a, no, a really good segue uh, on this. And I think this is related. I'd love to ask you about this. So this week, Google also launched something that kind of is exactly in the same vein uh, called uh, perspective. Did you hear about this thing? It's like a troll API basically. Nope. You'll have to fill me in. What the team at Google did basically is they trained a neural network on what nasty internet comments are, you know, right? Like this is a whole, this is a whole thing. You've, you've, everybody listening to this has probably noticed that websites where you can freely comment are going away it's quite rare to go on a news site and see comments enabled these days because it's such a huge overhead to maintain a positive community on the internet now that it i think the new york times has hundreds and hundreds of people working on this like it's a a whole thing and so the new perspective api from google is they they took thousands of comments from across the internet new york times news publications all that kind of thing and trained a neural network on basically to decide if a comment is toxic or not without the aid of kind of human moderators and you can set the threshold for like what defines toxic and how toxic is toxic and basically you kind of let this thing go wild in your comments and it handles it for you it can e- or either automatically flag them or it can hide them it can ban those people automatically and it, it, it kind of gives you a few, it gives you, it gives you a rating, a percentage rating of toxic toxicity. Wow, what a hard word to say. And it's really, really interesting. But I'm not sure, it's, it's a really interesting question because at what point does, is it okay for the computer just to decide this stuff?
1: It's silly. You
0: should, if you're, if you're doing this after the fact, you've already fucked
1: up. You didn't build your community right in the beginning.
0: Yeah, it's too late. Well, Twitter Twitter launched that new functionality last week where they automatically uh, rate limit abusive accounts, and they do all sorts of stuff if your if your tweet is detected to be toxic. Ironically, and I wonder if it's using the same API. But what they found is that it also rates people's like angry responses to something terrible, you know, like be it Trump being a sexist asshole as toxic, and then they got they got hell banned for using swears, basically. It's a really, really interesting problem to solve. I have
1: found what you're talking about, so I'm going to send some stuff to it and see what happens. So I'm going to type in... um, Oh, I want to know how toxic it is. All right, I'm going to type in uh, this code is fine. However, your implementation is awful. This is 31% toxic. All right. Really, why did why did you implement this way? Awful Don't uh, code fine, but implementation sucks seventy eight percent toxic Wow, uh, pro- probably because you would use the word sucks. I'm gonna take sucks out. Okay, so now it says, why did... Oh, uh, I actually should post that as a question and see if it changes. Why did you implement this way? Question. Awful. Code fine, but uh, implementation is poor. Oh, I also spell implementation. Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, 20, so that f- phrase that way, why did you implement this way? Question mark. Awful. Code is fine, but implementation is poor. 30% toxic.
0: Wow. Huh. So, I am just uh, have the article in front of me from the launch, and this guy said he tested uh, the sarcastic phrase, nice work, libtide, uh, and it only got 4% toxicity, but if he typed an off-color but benign expression, uh, in air quotes, life's a bitch, he found that the phrase got a very high toxicity well, yeah. score. Of course, because it doesn't have context, right? It's it doesn't it's just going on uh, association and I wonder I wonder how long they have to train it for I think it's pretty cool that this API exists and that they're doing neural networks for this but I think you're right if your community is that bad already and you have to use API like this it's like it's a write off couldn't figure out what you mean pretty sure
1: you have no idea what you're talking about five percent toxic
0: how do you feel about that is it
1: too low or too high ah uh, that's a pretty shitty comment I would have banned someone from
0: that for that on DA yeah. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, I thought it was pretty cool that Google kind of did this. I just hope it doesn't get widely implemented. I have I have concerns about it. Did you also read that
1: um, Google is suing them? Waymo? Do you know about this? Oh, my God. I completely forgot about that.
0: Oh, it's insane. They've had such a bad
1: week. And they've also lied about running a red yeah, light. Yeah. Uh, what was... It's going to be a long podcast this week. Sorry, folks. Yeah,
0: so... Oh my god. Yeah, sit down and get tight. No, that Uber thing was insane. One of Uber's engineers, so he's the head of the auto truck company now, he stole the LiDAR designs from Google. It's insane.
1: Okay, go go back and explain the whole thing. You're gonna have to explain from like how auto what auto is
0: and how it ended up at Okay, okay. Okay, okay. So this guy, it's Andrew Lebowski or something like that. This guy. The big Lebowski. He worked at Google on the self-driving car team for years. And he was the head of it, rah, rah, And then eventually, apparently what happened is he decided to leave. And so Google's suing this guy and Uber for this. And basically he decided to leave. But on the day he left, he downloaded 800 gigs of documents. I love it. Sorry, I don't remember the exact number.
1: An insanely large amount.
0: Yeah, he, he downloaded thousands, tens of thousands of documents, including schematics, confidential files, RFPs. Everything you can imagine onto his from his commercial laptop onto an external hard drive that he just bought. And didn't he like then he wiped it? the laptop, yeah. used it for three minutes, and then never used it again. And like, if you're going to do espionage, don't do it on your corporate laptop. Anyway, anyway, uh, he took those he took those lidar designs. He went to Otto. He founded a new company called Otto, which is working on self driving trucks. Google acquired Otto last year, and they're using it for their Uber transportation platform. And now, Google says that they got an anonymous tip, or somebody called them, and showed uh, with schematics from uh, Otto's lidar chips. So that's the sensor that they use for the self-driving cars. It's kind of a pivotal part of this whole thing. And oh my God, the schematics are the same as Waymo, like, and that's Google's self-driving cars. They're literally the same. And Google Google went back and they found that this guy had done this. And now they're basically suing them. And it's this crazy thing because. Well, first of all, Google invested in Uber. And second of all, who the fuck does that? Yeah, <laughs> It's insane. And um, so there's, there's more about it today on the New York Times. They were saying that the hardest part about this whole thing is there's such a small pool of people working on self-driving cars that they all have this shared knowledge in their head. And it's it's not, I was going to say it's easy to have it happen accidentally. It's not, but there's only so many people to pull from. It's insane. Well, I think that's true that like there
1: well, there is very few people working on self driving cars, but it's getting like easier and easier. With experience at least. Yeah, with experience. And it's interesting. I so Uber replied and said there's no there's not this is not a thing, there's no case here. We're really excited about defending. Yeah, of course they did. Yeah, of course they did. And I think they like I think you have to do that basically. But Those are pretty
0: hard set allegations.
1: I also don't think so. They Uber has said that it is an effort to slow down the competition, and and also and I just think that's bullshit. But isn't it interesting that Waymo spun out as a separate company from Google, and then like less than a month filed like there's got to be a reason why they removed themselves from Google. Well. Okay,
0: I'm not going to say the two things yeah, go hand in hand. Yeah, I think there hand. were too many conflicts of interest. Yeah,
1: but I'm not going to say that, that go hand in hand. There must have but, been too much overlap. But uh, but I wonder if like they did have to separate from uh, them. And, and just as one point on the Google Ventures things, because I've pitched Google Ventures a bunch and I know them there, Google Ventures is like super, super arm's length of Google itself. And they don't even like, in fact, they're firewalled from Google. And so, like, obviously, everybody, yeah, everyone, everyone at Google Ventures, like, obviously understands the Google mission, but the investment philosophy is simply just to progress the Google mission. And I would imagine that also, that, Make money. yeah, and I think that that. Well, I think there's also some hedging that happens there, right? Like. In case Waymo doesn't
0: do well, invest in Uber. Yeah, Google's in on every self driving car company. Yeah. and then just, well, also,
1: if you own early, like if you own a large percentage of the company in the early day, when you buy the company later on, the price to buy the company is like cut in half, right? Like you're not, you don't have to. Hell yeah. It's like way better, right? And so I, uh, I. Don't know that the fact that Google Ventures is an investor, which a lot of people have been like, messaged me and been like, "Oh, well, Google Ventures is an investor. I can't believe they did this." And I'm like, "Well, I don't think I don't, <laughs> Google Ventures doesn't care because I pitched them about Stay because they have sidewalk laps and intersection and stuff like that. They were like, "Oh, well, we don't know anything about that stuff. It's like we're not we're not involved with Google in any really real manner." Uh, and of course, and of course, they told me that my company would be completely unsuccessful and that they would crush me. So. Uh, that was fun. But I think there's a real case here. I, I, like, I, I think this is really interesting. I think the other interesting thing that came out this week that kind of ties to it, and I've been thinking about this so much recently, Owen. Like, it's... Cause, so one of the things we're doing in Atlanta is, like, helping them think about self-driving infrastructure, right? And in fact... I'll just say this but I really I, love, I even love breaching my NDAs on this show but I'm not going to do it in this instance. A month and a, a month and a half ago a city and a car company approached our company cut together as like a as a two like as two entities and said uh, you know this that's a European car company too actually that's not like even very well known. We're like we're going to work with this city to replace all the transit buses, subways, everything with like self-driving buggies and we want to, like, hook into the city. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. I've, like, seen them, and I've seen, like, the plans and everything, and it actually looks really good. And so, like, uh, can we feed all of the data from the city into the self-drive? Like, So they're actually building an app on the thing that ties into our uh, platform that allows us to, like, well, allows the city to push, uh, like, road closures and pothole maintenance and stuff like that into the car in real time. And I think that's interesting because I think that's actually an interesting... Uh, way to do it, but even more interesting is, oh god, I'm mean, gonna like get so many angry emails from people. But uh, the the city wants to basically like compete with Uber and Lyft by way of of these you know autonomous self driving buggy things that are provided by the city, and you can like call one on demand, and they'll show up to where you are and just like take you somewhere. And of course they're hybrid electric, so they're they're really cheap to maintain. You don't have to have someone uh, driving them. They're made basically of plastic and you know, reinforced plastic and, and uh, metal, so they're they're not like super expensive and stuff. And mm-hmm. so, and so, like I guess they want to use our company because they want to make an abstract, they want to make an a customer facing app, a city facing app, app that will push through our platform and then push the requests into any self driving car, or any any self driving buggy that they have uh, available. So that is neat. And I was thinking about that, and I'm like looking at their tech stack. They sent me over like how they're building the car and like all the Things that they're gonna be including in it. And then, and I was looking at it, I'm like, wow, this company's like really thinking about things in a great way. I'm so impressed. Like, you know, like even they're like, they're the way that they're thinking about putting the car together is way better than like even Tesla or anyone else that I've seen. Like, it's really, really clever. And I went and then, and then I read that New York Times article about how Uber lied about drive, uh, driving through the red light. And I look, and I was like, what cars were they even using at that time? I couldn't even remember. So I went and looked at those Volvos that they were using. No wonder it ran through a red light. You've got like some crazy like surfboard strapped to the roof with a couple of cardboard boxes on it. They're
0: still using those. Oh, what a bunch of junk. Can't wait for Uber to fail. Sorry. (laughs) Uber wants to retrofit cars. And I just, I think that's an expensive way to do it. I don't know. Dude, these. I think you're better to rebuild the car from scratch. I also saw the cost
1: of these buggies that this car manufacturer is making for this city. And, like, Mm. you and I could easily afford them.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Really, really cool. Futuristic, even. Okay. I have one more thing we should talk about because we're running really long the Echo thing. I know you hate Echo, but Amazon. So, I think we've talked about this before how Amazon is. They're involved in a murder case at the moment because some guy murdered somebody in the house, and like they used an echo that night, and the police are trying to get the audio from the echo. And talk to Laura about this because she's a lawyer. It's crazy, dude. So Amazon at first like complied with some of their requests, but now they've gone back with their defense, which is they say that the echo has the has and the guy's recorded voice has first first amendment rights. Fourth, first or fourth. First Amendment, I think. I think so too. Yeah, uh, yeah. First Amendment rights, and I'll I'll, I'll read a little bit here because I think it's pretty crazy. Uh, it's, so it's it's been going, f- and they're looking for audio for a whole forty-eight hour period. And this guy, he had played music at some point during the night, and the way that hot words work is so like Google Home and Alexa don't record all the time, but when you say a hot word, the audio it's kept in a buffer basically. And so it it tends to capture the 30 seconds before and 30 seconds after. And so when you say the hot word, it keeps the 30 seconds before and sends that to the cloud to see if it's relevant to your request. And (laughs) basically they're arguing that uh, Amazon's Alexa has a first amendment protection, the right to browse and purchase expressive materials anonymously without fear of government discovery. The responses may contain expressive materials such as a podcast or music requested by the user and the response itself constitutes amazon's first amendment protected speech it's it's a monumental case mm-hmm. i agree it's it's insane and like i can i i think i know why amazon doesn't want to share this data i i think that they're actually recording more in the cloud than the, that we they're kind of saying that's or what, maybe that's what that laura said people know uh there's no reason for amazon to so vehemently defend this right i mean other than the marketing stuff of it i i'm sure what's actually happening is they're recording five or ten minutes of audio you know like and and with amazon and google they all say that it's only x seconds but they never specify how long it is
1: they they don't specify well if you if it's seconds at... That's a length. So what do they say? Like, it's some degree. Of yeah, but it
0: could be 80 seconds. Or oh, they don't say how many seconds. Twenty. it says, yeah. we so record they just say
1: for some seconds after.
0: And before your query. It it uses that audio buffer technology. So basically, it's like recording audio on the device, but it doesn't save it or send it unless you say the hot word. So, so like, It's kind of like live photos. I see.
1: Well, okay, I mean definitely you have to have an all yeah but what if they have, have, have like all- five
0: have to- minutes of that so it's it's super interesting and i think i don't know amazon's very likely to win just because it's so absurd but i don't know you should ask laura and get get an opinion on that next week oh no, she that's
1: what she said I, I i oh
0: she actually said that right
1: yeah yeah she she was the one that was like oh they because she read the she read their defense and she was like that's a fine defense but something else feels off about this I was like, what do you mean? And yeah, she's like, why would
0: they go to this length?
1: Well, she's like, I think you could probably, if it's a murder trial, you could probably just, like, you should be able to search warrant it. Or, like, she's like, this just doesn't, I don't think this is going to wor- work for them. And I was like, okay. Yeah, and they gave like, up his music
0: history. Yeah. They gave up purchases.
1: And she's not, like, she's re- like she's pretty technical, but she's not, like, super, super technical. And she's like, it just seems to me, like, they don't want to
0: show how much is being recorded. And I was like, Pff right because then it would oh, yeah, be public that's a great point <laughs> it'd be really bad interesting Well, we'll report back on whenever this i mean this trials probably going to go on for a long time but it has implications because voice assistants are getting pervasive i mean they sold 6 million of these damn things last year
1: what is the uh what is the app that the google phone makers are forcing them to use
0: oh yeah i wrote that in there it doesn't. It's not super relevant, but it's really interesting. Google's actually really forcing phone vendors to get Android-less shit. Like, if, if you use an Android phone, you've probably noticed that the stock messaging app is, like, some shitty Frankenstein, like, Samsung SMS app. And now Google's forcing most of its carriers that use Android to uh, use an official one. Good. And I, I just left it in there because it was really kind of, like, curious to me that they're actually mandating this stuff now. So... They haven't got everybody. They got everybody basically but Samsung. But it actually means that an Android phone will be cleaner soon. And I think that's actually yeah. great progress. And they're using a new technology called RCS, which is the rich SMS standard. So you can embed links. You can add photos and all that kind of thing. And it's actually within SMS. It's a really, really cool technology. And Android's going to have it before iPhone, which is kind of cool, actually.
1: By the way, did you know that net neutrality rules are going to change?
0: Yeah, Trump. I think
1: they're gonna I think they're gonna <laughs> repeal most of net neutrality. Although I've been thinking about net neutrality a yeah, lot. Yeah, it's gonna be bad. I thought a lot about well, I've been thinking about well,
0: yeah. Well, Netflix is gonna have to pay a lot of money to Comcast if they repeal this stuff. Uh,
1: it's interesting. I mean, so the one thing that they've repealed or like that they're like going after right now kind of makes some sense. So basically there was like a kind of like mandate on small ISPs. Well. There was a mandate to comply to all of these different types of things that had to happen, and some of them likely required an ISP to install equipment. So it was, like, some transparency stuff, and, like, also, like, uh, changing the way that you package things so that they're, like, debund... Like, you would effectively have to debundle them, or, like, you'd have to show them debundled and stuff like that. And, like, basically, for, like, middle America ISPs with less than 100,000 customers, they're, like... Like we only service sixty thousand people. Like we have five people who work here. We can't do this. I think, and so they—they they, the only thing they've done so far is changed that that the ISP now can have up to one hundred and twenty-five thousand customers before they're on this like higher level of scrutiny. And I think that's probably fine because I mean I've worked with yeah. Middle America ISPs and they really are like, but you know what? All oh, the other thing I was but thinking a lot is, of
0: the the law is constructive.
1: I am, so do you know that also, okay, we like we have, I'm, like we're like hours in now, but like which one last thing on this quickly. Like, so Verizon, I'm just going to say this really quickly, but like Verizon is rolling out 5G in America, which is great. In fact, it's-
0: Well, it's 4G
1: gigabit. <laughs> well, it's still it's still faster than my home internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I suspect that the ISP or the like, yeah, like the large ISPs are starting to shift their cost centers- so you think right like right over time you can deprecate like routers you can deprecate cables you can deprecate switching stations and then you can like stand up satellites and like wireless and stuff like that i would imagine it makes sense that within like two or three years one of these like verizons will go to like You know, it's everything's wireless. You don't, you can't buy. Yeah, five G will replace home internet. Yeah, and but you know, here's an interesting thing, and just something for people to to think about, and also to think about in their local communities is the American government gave easements to all of these telcos. Right, they said. You know, we you can run you can run cable through this land for free. It's even you know it's government land, or even sometimes it's it's uh, private land. You know, you can put poles up like this is critical infrastructure, and so all these easements were granted. But these easements last. Some of them last for like two or three hundred years. Some of them last for a hundred years or whatever. And I was speaking to Laura about this, and she looked at me. and She's like, "You think the ISPs are going to give all that land back?" And I was like, Pfft, "Doubtful." Huh. So if you like, as this all unfolds, and you live in a in a you know a community, and if you notice that. We're moving more and more to to wireless, and like people, they start cutting your cable to your house and moving to a wireless cable. You better start writing to your city councilor and your and your mayor and saying, "I want that, uh, I want that pole that's in my driveway out of my driveway." Then get that shit out right. of there.
0: Have you heard of Starry Internet? No, in Boston. So it's a it's a basically what you're talking about. It's a 5G kind of capable wireless internet company that the city of Boston has collaborated on <laughs> and basically you just install something on the top of your building you plug it into the existing wiring in your building and you got gigabit internet done I like
1: Nigel Jacob in Boston and I'm going to say that cuz I like him and if anyone knows him then I don't want to piss off the next part but god Boston's a shit show when it comes to technology what a mess I just can't <laughs> stand dealing with them This
0: looks like a cool company though
1: Ugh are so annoying they think they're so progressive and like every week i see something from boston in the news where they're like oh boston just got this like special grant from the faa that like allows drones to drive in this uh certain block to do deliveries and we're gonna test this stuff and then like there's no process to talk to the government about doing this if you're a drone company yeah right they have like two people that they're working with and they won't allow
0: anyone else to like fuck you guys anyway sorry i'm a little pissed off right now but yeah (laughs) anyway this i totally agree with you though uh that wiring and will go away anyway i think we've been going on a long time this week so we should wrap it up here
1: next week let's (laughs) talk about what we actually think about net neutrality because i have very many different views on very many very that's a whole podcast worth. yeah people have asked about it before so
0: let's let's do that yeah oh yeah we can do a special episode on net neutrality and next week
1: our special guest is going to be cloud opinion for yorick so
0: no actually the following week because next week oh, we next have week, taylor yes. lorenz joining us to talk yes. about snapchat that's so and cool. it's gonna be awesome yeah i think she'll probably be, it'll be a longer segment with her next week i bet she'll side with me oh i'm sure she'll side with you <laughs> but we'll, you can right. defend your position anyway my over. spiel is show notes at chargepodcast.com review us please and that's it for this week I hope you like this extra long one because there's some good shit in this thank you <laughs> it was a good talk bye